I want to tell the people that I want to tell. And I want it to be easy for me to do that. And I want it also to be easy for me to be like, hey, I don't want to tell that person and that that be okay. And just like have it be a normal thing, like anything else you would tell somebody about yourself. Welcome to Care Plus Cures, Advancing Children's Health in Silicon Valley, a podcast brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. Through the Care Plus Cures podcast, we share stories of triumphs and challenges by uniting patient families, doctors, care team members, and donors like you to advance transformative health care for children. I'm Sarah Davis, a donor and your host. You just heard from Egan, a former patient of the Stanford Gender Clinic who underwent hormone replacement therapy. He explains the importance of identity and how and when to share that with peers. Our identities are a huge part of who we are, and that includes our gender identity. Transgender youth make up just 3% of the population, but they're also at greatest risk of suicide compared to their non-transgender peers because of rejection, bullying, and other victimization. When Egan's family first came to the gender clinic, they were worried about him. My name is Juliet. I have a trans son. His name is Egan. I also have an older son whose name is Niall. My name is Tim. I've been happily married to Juliet for 27 years. Very proud of our two boys. And where are you calling from? We are calling from Melbourne, Australia, where we live with Egan. And our older son is now still in California going to college. We moved here very recently. We lived in Northern California, just across the bay from Stanford for many years. Can you tell me a little bit about Egan? What's he like? Well, he and I joke that he's a harsh mellow. <laughs> a harsh mellow. Nice. I love that. He's absolutely sweet and darling and adorable and a kind of like a cinnamon roll. But he has an absolute steel inner core of conviction and drive. He's kind. He is funny. He has some moments when he's absolutely electrifying. He got top marks in his year for the first term history exam, and he was so thrilled. What brought you to the Stanford Gender Clinic? I reached out to them basically immediately. We were in the area. I went to Stanford as an undergraduate it was an obvious choice for us to reach out just because we knew they were at the forefront of the entire field. And we had a situation where Egan was trying to work out who he was and discovering himself. And he wanted to use another name for a while. We were concerned about Egan and self-harm. We've always had the philosophy that we want to be with our kids where they are. Egan is a unique individual and he needed to be where he was. And it was a process, I believe, for him as well as for us. I would say that we feel really fortunate to have been supported by a whole bunch of medical professionals across that journey. I also spoke with Dr. Tandy A., professor of pediatrics at Stanford Medicine, pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford Children's Health, and the director of the Adolescent and Pediatric Gender Clinic at Stanford. 
Dr. A's work comes at a crucial time in our culture in recognizing the importance of gender identity and affirmation. Dr. A, what would happen if young people are not affirmed? Can you tell us a little bit more about the implications? We know that if our adolescents are not affirmed, there is an increased risk of anxiety, depression, and suicide. In fact, that's what really got me into this area in the clinical realm as well, because I figured as a parent, that's not something you want your child to ever be experiencing and you feel you know, helpless and you want to be able to do something about it. And then I realized also as a kid's hormone doctor, I have that knowledge. So I felt pulled to be able to advocate and help this population. And I think that more and more work is now showing that kids who are affirmed and supported at a younger age by their parents, they actually are able to decrease the risks for anxiety, depression, and suicide so that it becomes the same rates as their non-transgender peers. So it is very important, and that's why I think a lot of us do this work. And as the availability and access to gender medicine perhaps may get limited, we need to be very careful about what's going to be happening with these kids and how vulnerable they are. And people really have to step in and say, we really need to be able to protect them and do something for them. Can you tell me a little bit about a patient and their family and what they might have experienced at the gender clinic? Sure. So the first thing a family may experience when they come is to be doing an intake, perhaps with our social worker or a mental health provider, just for us to get to know them a little bit better. And then seeing what the family dynamics are and how the child is just doing overall. And at the first visit, when you're meeting with us, you're going to meet the whole team. So because we're a multidisciplinary clinic, which is also another unique aspect, you'll meet someone like myself, a medical provider. You'll also meet a mental health provider on the team. And as needed, you might meet other subspecialists because of different things that might be just overall going on with your health that we can support. And it's a lot of talking, and it's oftentimes the first opportunity for a family and the patient to talk about their gender journey and why they're seeking care at a gender clinic. And then we ask them, what are their goals? What do they want to achieve at the visit? And trying to get them connected and telling them what the path would be on that journey to help them reach the goals they like. Egan, what was it like going to the gender clinic? Well, the first appointment is very long. It's three hours. We forgot to eat beforehand and the nurse had to come and give us like animal crackers because we were like <laughs> shaking with hunger. I remember that. <laughs> and everything was fine, but everyone's just really nice. You go in and you don't know how everyone's going to be. Like when we were trying to find a therapist for me, we had to call like five different therapists before they were willing to take someone who's trans. It's not like people weren't <laughs> willing to take somebody who's trans. What I found was that in the world of therapists, you often find people who are really good with LGBT issues, but they tend to be good with adults. And then you'll find the people who are good with adolescents, and those people are good with adolescents, but not with LGBT issues. And so it's actually quite rare to find somebody who does both. 
some people think of gender treatment as prescribing hormones or gender reassignment surgery, but the majority of the work at the gender clinic addresses mental health. When people think about a gender clinic and having a kid's hormone doctor, they're thinking about the medical aspects. But I would say maybe 5 to 10% of what the clinic does is actually related to hormones and medical treatment. But the rest is really related to mental health and support and community. So, for instance, we're always trying to be proactive and talking to families about the challenges that their child may be facing, perhaps in school. How can they get advocates to help support and affirm their child at school? What about when they want to go to a camp or they're participating in a sport? How can we help? We also talk about having peer groups for the child so that they can meet others who are going through the same thing. Also peer support for the parents and by having parent mentors, I think positive role modeling is important as well. So we try to connect the families to all the resources that they might be needing or haven't even thought about. And sometimes that's just going to be for the child and the parent, but we also try to think about siblings. And then how do you also tell the story out to the more not so immediate family, but the extended family? There's other aspects such as the legal paperwork that perhaps a family needs to learn how to navigate, and that can always be a challenge. We also provide help with how do you navigate the insurance system as well, just for visits. How do you find mental health providers? So when a child actually comes to our gender clinic, we're more like a resource center and getting people connected and guided appropriately so that they can make that decision for what they want to do to affirm their gender. I'm wondering if you can describe some of the terminology that we've been using in this conversation. What does it mean to be cisgender, transgender, non-binary, or bigender? People get designated to a certain sex at birth as either male or female, and that's usually based on anatomy. And then gender identity is how a person in their head thinks about their gender as either masculine, feminine, or somewhere in between, and that might be non-binary or to be both, which might be by gender. And sometimes that can be fluid, meaning it might change with how they're developing and they might decide that they might be more masculine or feminine at a certain time. And that itself is a gender identity. And then, of course, there's also gender expression is how one wants to express this gender. So when we hear the term cisgender, it just means that the sex designated at birth is consistent with the gender identity that has been given. When the term transgender is used, it just means that the sex designated at birth is not consistent with the gender identity And so using terms from what's actually chemistry or organic chemistry, and that's where when bonds are on the same side in chemistry, they call it cis. And when bonds are on different sides, they call it trans. The terms cisgender and transgender came about. I feel like our society is becoming more aware of gender identity. For example, asking what people's pronouns are. 
she, her, he, him, they, them. Why is this important? I think it's really important because you're really trying to affirm and respect a person's identity. And there's so many ways in which someone has an identity. When someone is looked upon like on the street, there's a lot of thoughts that may come into our head that are maybe stereotypes or presumed to be true about a person. But when you ask someone's name and the pronoun, you're really affirming who that person is and being respectful. And I think that is important. And it wasn't something we've used in society before because assumptions were made. But now is an opportunity to actually ask. One of the arguments against young people undergoing hormone replacement therapy or related surgery is about how young people's process of forming an identity for themselves is ever shifting. Do we trust them to know who they are at this point in their lives? I hear a lot of people say, well, kids don't understand themselves. And I think it's a little bit of a trap because Kids only don't understand themselves the way that any human being doesn't understand themselves, right? We grow into ourselves as we get older. And even at our age, there are still things we don't understand about ourselves, right? But one of the things that I think is really important to point out is that Egan was very certain about some things. Like, for example, that what everybody was seeing him as was not right. That was incorrect, And there was never any doubt in our minds that he was right about that. So I want to make sure that when we talk about not understanding, what we're really talking about is understanding the truth of oneself is a process and it needs to be handled with deep respect. I've heard some say gender identity is a choice or that people don't understand themselves and therefore their gender identity as young people. What do you think about this? Our parents come in and they want us to find that genetic cause. And we don't know, just as I would say, how did you know of your own gender identity is what I often will ask the parents. It's something that develops over time and you know it in your head. And it's a balance of who you are and what you want and how you feel in relationship to the rest of the community and the world. So I don't think we're ever going to find a genetic cause, nor do we really need to. And I think it's something that has just been innate and born in terms of what the choice is. And we really don't have a way to be able to change. Now, gender identity may be fluid at times, and that itself is an identity as well. And what I mean by it might be fluid is that the degree of masculinity and femininity may change a little bit, but the person knows where they stand and who they are. And so that really is not a choice, but an expression of who they are that they want to affirm. Transgender youth like Egan often feel a disconnect between the gender assigned to them at birth and the gender they identify with. In clinical terms, this is called gender dysphoria. This is not considered a choice. Imagine you realized that you weren't who everyone thought you were and how that would feel and what a cosmic dissonance that would be to your psyche. A lot of people don't understand that this is an ongoing internal truth that there isn't a change. The only change is in 
how the child wants to be treated. The change is not happening inside the child. The change is happening in how the child demands to be treated. I think a lot of people are very sensitive, for example, about injustice. You know, this person said that I did this thing and I didn't really do that thing. Yeah, I think all of us can relate to this, this idea that when we know something is true, particularly about ourselves, having other people say it's not true is a terrible, terrible feeling. This is what gaslighting is. When people around you are trying to tell you something about yourself that you know is not true, and they're trying to convince you anyway, and trying to tell you that maybe even that you're not reliable for believing that thing about yourself when you know it's true. That kind of stuff is the kind of stuff that people get really, really angry about. But I don't see them often applying that to the experience of trans children. And it's hard because they get told who they are starting so early that it takes time for cognitively in their development for them to say, honestly, I keep hearing this story about who I am, but you know, that's not really it. I think the most common misunderstanding that I hear from other people is the one where they think somehow this is a choice or this is a change in the child. And it's not a choice and it's not a change in the child. What is life like now for your family? I'm going to tell you a funny story. So last night we were at a party and there were a lot of people there and we were talking with somebody and we learned that her son had changed his name. And we were like, oh, that's cool. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's just like if your son decided to change his name too. And we were like, Aiken. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, Elliot. And I was like, oh, right, <laughs> like Elliot. <laughs> and it was like this little tiny moment where I realized, oh, wait, this person doesn't know my son is trans. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> it was just a funny little moment. And I was like, Right. Elliot. Yeah. Like as, as though he were to change his name to Elliot. And I was honestly quite delighted by the whole thing. <laughs> Just to say, ah, it was almost like a feeling like we actually did it. We got through it. There's always going to be more challenges, but I really felt like we had done something right. And that Egan was living the life he wanted to live. And that just made me really happy. And we can see a different person, just a happier person. We're in a really good place and our heart goes out to all those people who don't have all the advantages we do. It was hard for us and it took us years. What advice would you give to parents in this situation? I'd probably have a couple pieces. One is be with your kid where they are now. Don't think about what's going to happen next year. Don't think what's going to happen five years in the future. Be with your kid where they are now. And get good help. Get Reach good out help. for help. Medical, social, legal. People are here to help you. There are communities of parents and lawyers and medical professionals. Get help. And then as much as possible, be a team around parenting and note that your number one job is to support your child. I would say center your child's experience. Remember that your child is the authority here on the truth of what is happening. And 
that doesn't mean that they have the power to advocate for themselves. So it's your job as a parent to try to understand where they are, try to be there with them, and try to advocate for what they need right now. Egan, what would you like to say to donors and supporters who give to the gender clinic and allow them to help others like you? It's important. I mean, it was hard enough for me. I have two very educated parents and we had great insurance and we could take time out of our days to drive to Stanford. But, you know, not everyone can do that. But being able to do that and like hopefully making sure so that other kids can be able to do that is really important. And Dr. A, what is the importance of philanthropy in your work? I think philanthropy is so important because a lot of the funding and grant agencies and foundations often don't think about gender medicine because it is newer. And perhaps from a business model, gender medicine may not be a high revenue earning kind of practice because we spend a lot of time counseling and talking and supporting our patients. And for every one patient that comes in, we're supporting an entire family. So there's a lot of gaps that may not necessarily get funded. And that's where philanthropy really helps us to get from what I say, a gender clinic to a gender program and to offer the extras, such as the resources with parents, community events. Also for some of the families that aren't going to necessarily be able to have the resources to be able to afford medicines or perhaps even procedures. How can we help advocate for them as well as just some of the name changes and day-to-day paperwork issues that someone may have to go through? So philanthropy can help in all sorts of ways and also including training more people to go into this area because there's more of a demand and I think not enough providers at this point. Kids want to have a sense of understanding and belonging. In fact, it is crucial for their healthy development. Parents have a powerful influence on this by being present and allowing kids to show up as they are, however they might identify. We've heard this firsthand through Egan and his parents, Juliet and Tim. Also, we've heard how persistence paid off for them. And just a note, because this episode discussed youth mental health and suicide, if you or anyone you know is experiencing abuse, self-harm, or suicidal thoughts, please text 741-741 to the Crisis Text Line for free 24-7 support or call and chat with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. I'm Sarah Davis, and this is the Care Plus Cures podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Packard Foundation for Children's Health. You can find out more about the foundation's work and donate to Lucille Packard Children's Hospital Stanford at supportlpch.org. You can also follow us and subscribe to the podcast at carepluscures.org. That's care, P-L-U-S, cures.org. As a donor myself, I am proud that my donation supports care, comfort, and cures for patients at Packard Children's Hospital and beyond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening.